It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. I'm going to talk about a man that I haven't mentioned the entire while. And yet, this is going to sound funny, but out of all the different missionaries in this time frame that we're talking about, the late 30s through the late 60s, he may be my favorite. And I haven't even mentioned him. Isn't that interesting? And he enters into the story of the Yali for one year. That's it. And yet, it's an impact that he had on my life as I'm studying sort of the main characters, if we could say it, which would be Stanley Dale. And Philip Masters is going to be another rather key character. Uh, Bruno uh, It's a French last name, and I've never actually gotten the pronunciation of it, sorry. But those guys are the ones that are going to have the bulk of the labor, and they are going to get credits for the grand transformation of these, these Yali people, as they should. But there is another character that I would like to introduce you to today that is going to fill in or stand in for Stanley uh, Dale and his wife, Pat, when they are on, on furlough. And so when, when they leave to go back to Australia on furlough for a year, then Costas McCreese and his wife, Alki, come in. And it is one dangerous year uh, in dealing with the Yali, and guess who inherits it? Costas. And the way he is going to handle it is very, very inspiring to my soul, to the point that I would say out of this entire landscape of 30, 40 years, he's going to be one of my great heroes. And so you could say, why haven't you mentioned him? Well, that's part of the fun of a series like this, is holding little surprises as we go. And uh, I want to be like Costas McCreese. And I could have named this whole message, Daring to Do as Costas McCreese, and it would have been appropriate. And uh, there's certain things that Costas McCreese represents that are really powerful in my own life that I have reflected back on many times. When I'm in certain situations, I've thought of him, and I've thought of how he handled the situation that he was dealing with with the Yali when he was there in one year. So this one's called The Stand-In. And my clicker is not working. Oh, there we go. A stand-in, someone who fills the place of an actor or actress in order to set up the shot. So it's typically a film term. They adopt this arduous challenge in order to make it easier for the actor or actress when they arrive on set. They never get the applause, they just get the pain. Now, most of us would love to be a stand-in. I mean, it'd be really fun. So to call it pain is really maybe misleading because when you're talking about a film set, that just sounds fun, right? However, you're usually about the same height as the person, the same build, the same uh, skin color, skin tones, so that they're going to set up, it's called the blocking, they're going to set up the lighting, and they're going to frame the shot, and they're going to sort of walk it through. And so they're going to get all the shots, the camera movements, the, you know, the, the way it's going to lay out all the lighting, make sure it's perfect, then they're going to bring in what we could call the talent. Notice how you as a stand-in weren't called the talent, Right. You just stand there, right? You get to be under the hot lights. You have to move around. You're, you're, you could be there for hours, whereas the actor might come in for minutes. 
And it doesn't seem fair, does it? I mean, come on, because guess who ends up getting all the applause uh, for their great role uh, in that movie? It's not the stand-in. And so the stand-in's role is very, very interesting. Uh, and however, whereas most of us wouldn't mind, hey, we're still getting paid to be a stand-in. That's not a bad deal. And, you know, you get to hang out in, in, on a movie set. I mean, that's, that's pretty fun. So probably most of us would still say, I'll be a stand-in. And yet in life, there are a lot of other situations that are not movies where God is going to ask us as believers if we would be willing to stand in. Uh, Nathan? Oh, no wonder my clicker's not working, huh? So Nathan, for those of you on podcast that are wondering why there's this gap of time and I'm saying Nathan's name, Nathan likes uh, scrambled, sort of snuck up along the side wall to the front and then solved my clicker problems. Uh, thank you, Nathan. Uh, Nathan's a good man, don't you guys think? He's a pretty impressive guy. Uh, and you know what? As far as I'm concerned, maybe this is why he snuck up uh, this message is now officially dedicated to Nathan Johnson. And you'll understand why. This, he, he, he plays this role extremely well. He does what he does. He is a very, very talented man that could lead his own ministries, and yet he oftentimes will just serve uh, all day long, every day. And so thank you, Nathan, for being a stand-in. Self-fulfillment versus God-fulfillment. You see, when you see someone else getting the credit for all the work you just did, they get the, high, the big contract and the applause, it can touch something inside of us. It's like, hey, that is something I deserve. And yet as the Christian, you know that, that thing that you feel you deserve? Are you willing to let it go? You see, this whole idea of swapping out fulfillment for God fulfillment, your fulfillment, God's fulfillment, boy, am I like going in and out every word now? This is getting worse and worse. Do you want to give me the microphone? I'll just switch, switch it up to the microphone. Sorry, all of you via podcast, this is quite the uh, experience. I see something happening. All right. Uh, and test, test. Turn off one, turn on the other. There we are. All right, guys, uh, this must look great in the video, too, with my headset and the microphone and my clicker uh, all together. Uh, so I don't know what you've missed because I've cut out almost every other word here. Uh, however, one of the keys to Christianity is taking that one desire that we have to be seen, to be known, to be understood, to be liked, whatever that is. If we could ball that up into one thing, it would be called fulfillment, in, if we could say it that way. There's a name for it in Scripture that I'm just about to uh, go to. But we, we want to put that all in one bag. And then Jesus says, could I have that? Could you entrust that to me? You see, it's one of the riskiest, most daring things that we will ever go through in our life is to give up that sense of us, that sense of our priority, that sense of our gain, that sense of our need. Who's going to take care of that if I give it up? And yet, if you want to grow in the kingdom of heaven, you have to stick it all in that one bag and hand it to Jesus and trust him with it. That unless you do, you actually are going to lose it. So as long as you hold on to that stuff, it goes away. It flies away like the wind. However, when you give it to Christ, he cares for it. 
And that's the great transaction of the Christian. At least it's supposed to be. But many of us haven't been introduced to it at the level that we are required to actually engage with this reality in our lives. So self-fulfillment versus God-fulfillment. So you'll notice I have a scripture up on the screen, Matthew 16, 25. And then underneath it, I have Matthew 10, 39, Mark 8, 35, Luke 17, 33, and John 12, 25. This one statement is rehearsed and repeated many times. That's quite a statement in scripture. You're going to see something that many times, five times in scripture. That's a lot of reference to one idea. So I think we should take note of it. And that is, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. So when it uses the word life, whosoever will save his life, when we think of life, we think of mortal breath. And yet what this idea is, is more than just mortal breath. It is sort of that essence of what you are living for. What moves you? What makes you tick? What makes you long? What makes you dream? That dimension of your life, which in the Greek is known as suke, breath of life, the soul, the center of feeling and longing, the seat of fulfillment. This is like who you are, uniquely you, the desires, the drive, the passion. What is your motive for living? What is your design? What is your dream? This center point which is for most of us a sacred territory that we don't want anyone to touch. Mine is the classic statement. It's like our, if you ever saw uh, The Hobbit, my precious, you know, this is our, our precious. This is what we will not let go of. And Jesus says, you either, you hold on to it, you die. You give it up, you live. You see, this transaction of giving up our life, our suke, who we are, what we live for, what we desire to God is the essence of growth in the kingdom of heaven. Introducing Stanley Dale's stand-in, Costas McCrease. It's interesting, there's, there's famous actors throughout the years that have had stand-ins and they, in their contracts, even when they sign them, they're saying, I want this person as a stand-in. I don't know why they would care, but they have certain people that are always their stand-in. And Stanley Dale, had a stand-in, and his name was Costas McCrease. Stanley Dale didn't pick this uh, stand-in. In fact, it's so it's humorous, really, how different Costas McCrease is from Stanley Dale. And that's one of the fun things about studying these missionaries is they each have strengths and they each have weaknesses. Costas McCrease is the ultimate likable character. Stanley Dale, mm, I don't know if I would call him likable. He is. He's He's admirable, he's honorable, he's a truth giver, but he's sort of like that prophet character that comes in with a scraggly beard and the long pointy nose and the long bony finger. He's not the most likable character, you know, personality-wise, but he is something very, very special in history. And that's why you see me naming the whole series after him, because even though he's a very imperfect model, he's someone that shows us that God uses a very imperfect character to showcase his power and his glory. And I love that about Stanley Dale. And I love Stanley Dale. I really do. I cherish his life and the memory of it. He's, he's had a huge impact on me. Costas McCreese, I would sort of like to be like this guy day in and day out. Okay, This is like, he's a hero to me in so many regards. 
So I'm going to call him the epitome of a great missionary. So we actually have a picture, isn't this fun, uh, of Costas McCreese, and there's his wife, Alki, and I'm not sure what his uh, son's name is in that picture. Sorry, I didn't have that data. Uh, I could figure it out, but I didn't. Sorry about that. Uh, and so they're from Greece. So I know this seems like we're getting off topic for a second. We'll get back to Costas. But I want you to recognize that the idea of a stand-in is very dense in Scripture. This is a concept that is very, very real, that even though someone else is going to get the credit for someone, something, someone else is going to get the limelight, that there is a role that is to be played by the forerunner. A stand-in is a forerunner. And it's interesting because even in the makeup of the Jewish culture, they have a, this role called a friend of the bridegroom. Extremely interesting. Because when a man and a woman enter into that relationship, like, will you marry me type of relationship, they call it betrothal. When they entered into this bond of connection, the, the husband would go off to prepare a place. And meanwhile, the bride, now in a covenantal understanding with a man, is sort of in this unique place. She's in a waiting place. And she is entrusted to his most trusted friend. The bridegroom's most trusted friend is who the bride is entrusted to. And he is supposed to care for her. He is not supposed to lead her to himself. He is supposed to preserve her and protect her for the bridegroom. That's an incredible statement. And guess what? John the Baptist understands his role. Jesus understands exactly who John the Baptist is. What is his role? He is a friend of the bridegroom. So John the Baptist, the stand-in, the friend of the bridegroom, John 3, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, and this is John the Baptist speaking, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And then listen to this statement. This is the context for this one statement that many of us have heard, cherished, and desired to see fulfilled in our life many times over. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's stand-in language. That's friend of the bridegroom language. In other words, it's not about me. I'm not the one that's supposed to stand on the stage and get the applause. I'm merely the one that is setting things up for the one who is after me. You know, and we could say, that sounds like a, a jip to poor John the Baptist. That sounds like something that none of us would want. Because don't we have needs personally to be applauded, to be appreciated, to be found significant? John is going to say that he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. His joy is fulfilled in seeing the bride matched with the bridegroom. That's his great joy. The question is, are we willing to allow it to be our great joy? Because technically, we're stand-ins. We are ones that are bringing people to the Christ. We're not the answer in and of ourselves. We're not the ones that the light is supposed to shine on. We're holding a place. And we are in a sense, barking in the wilderness, saying, make straight your, the paths for the Lord. The coming is at hand. 
You see, we are as a John the Baptist, and it'd be helpful for us to recognize that. Matthew 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It's a transition, watershed point in history. We have the old becoming the new. And though John is under the old system, Jesus is giving, paying him the highest of compliments. You know, there's never been a forerunner like this. There's never been a stand-in like this. This guy is doing it right. And so we should take note of what John is doing because it is rather extraordinary. He is willing to decrease that someone else, known as Jesus, would increase. The marriage proposal. I remember thinking about this exact thought when I was proposing to Leslie. And I recognized how profound it was that God would even allow for what we could call the institution of marriage. Because in marriage, in this human earthly sense, I am called a bridegroom. But woe is me if I think I am the bridegroom. I am a lowercase b bridegroom. But the fact that God allows me to have that place in Leslie's life, even though he is such a greater bridegroom and he is coming in the clouds to come for her, he cherishes my bride as his own. And so how do I look at that? That's a weird thought, isn't it? I'm a stand-in. I am a John the Baptist. I am caring for my wife And I'm standing in the place showing her the love of Jesus because that's my role. My role is to love her as Christ loves his church. And so as a result, even when I was proposing to her, this is basically what I said. Leslie, I recognize that I'm just a stand-in. I didn't use the term stand-in. Your true bridegroom is Jesus. And my desire is to decrease that he would increase in your life. Now, I want us just to reflect upon the profundity of that in the big picture, too. Because there is a bride known as the church, and our job is not to draw them to ourselves and to get the applause of that bride and to have them fawn over us, but to actually lead them to the one that truly is deserving of all our fawning and applause, and that is Jesus Christ. The art of standing in, doing it Costas McCreese style. So I'm going to do my best to lead you into what has had a great impact on me. Again, you know, as I do this, I don't know how much of an impact it has on you. It's, it's funny because when you study this time period, you're dealing with part of my formative understanding as a believer. Like my, part of my worldview of missions, part of my worldview of what it means to live boldly for Jesus comes out of these stories. This is like foundational stuff for my life as a Christian. And so when you you deal with Costas McCreese, I feel like I'm sharing something very precious with you. It's like, wow, this is sort of one of my hidden gems. This is one of the things that has greatly impacted me, and I'm about to share it with you. I don't know if it's going to impact you the way it did me. And I don't know, because we're not just reading through Lords of the Earth together. So the context is not always there. And so like, can I properly communicate this? I don't know. We'll find out. Don Richardson says this of Costas. It was then that he came. An exuberant young Greek named Costas Macrese, missionary son of an enterprising businessman in Athens. As he stepped out of the Cessna, 
onto Ninia's muddy airstrip, Costas was not impressed. Earlier, he had enjoyed the two years' ministry in the sunny Swart Valley among the cheerful Donnie people, the tribe that makes visitors feel like kings and queens since the gospel changed their hearts. And that's a quote. So when you come from the Swart Valley, which is a very different climate, it's very pleasant compared to where he's headed to in Ninya here. And the, the Doni are such a lively, loving people. And so do you guys remember uh, Guadate, uh, the, the story of the missionary in the showdown? that He was a Doni. Okay, so very cheerful, happy. And now he comes here where there's a somberness in the air. I mean, it's dense. It's thick. It's like an oppression that is upon it. And so... Uh, as it says to the Donnie people, the tribe that makes visitors feel like kings and queens since the gospel changed their hearts. But here at Ninia, the people stood back in the shadows, glowering. It's like, welcome, Costas. He's all by himself. And when that plane leaves, it leaves him all alone amongst a people that he doesn't know. Stan and Pat Dale aren't even there, right? So no one is there except for, well, him. I mean, what, a, what an isolated feeling. The aircraft roared down the airstrip and took off for sunnier climbs, leaving Costas alone in that tomb-like valley. He walked down to the Dale residence and opened the door with a key that had been given to him. No fires had warmed the house for several weeks, and its dark interior seemed even colder and danker than the weather outside. Costas shivered. The house, he saw at once, was still uncompleted. In the kitchen and a number of other rooms, ceilings had not yet been filled in. Heat from the kitchen stove will quickly escape from the rafters and out through the thin metal roof, leaving the greater part of the house unwarmed, he reasoned. I must put a ceiling over these rooms before I bring Alki and the children here. Then Costas saw the gunny sacks, still hanging some of the doors and lining many of the walls. Stan had replaced a number of them with brown waterproof paper. As Costas watched, cold mist blew in through the cracks in the walls. This will all have to be lined with pandanus spark, he mused. Costas wanted to take care of these things so that Stan could give his full-time to language study and help in the Yali when he returned. The split palm bark floor was not yet nailed down in a couple of rooms and was springy underfoot, and the wind and mist seeped in through occasional gaps. I'll nail this down and cover the entire floor with a second layer of palm bark to cover the gaps, he decided. Day after day, Costas worked trim, trimming, sawing, and hammering. Pat Dale would scarcely recognize her home, which her husband, in his eagerness for language study and preaching, had never completed. Gone were the drab sackcloth walls and doors. Snug, windproof walls, floors, and ceilings made the rooms seem cozy and comfortable. But exuberant Costas was still not satisfied. The house was still cold because the heat that the wood-burning stove, wood, wood stove gave was trapped in the kitchen and could not circulate through the house. Resourceful, he found a way to correct the problem. He cut long rectangular slots in the walls just below the ceiling line throughout the house, allowing warm air from the kitchen to circulate to every corner of the house. The effect was amazing. Central heating had come to the remote Hellic Valley. <laughs> Likewise, Costas installed a flush toilet along with a shower, wash basin, sink, and wall mirror in a room Pat planned to use as a pantry. No more trekking out on rainy nights to that drafty outhouse teetering on the edge of a nearby cliff. Still not satisfied, Costas extended the flower bed stand planted and landscaped the surrounding yard with flat rock pathways and picturesque retaining walls. Gradually, Ninya Station began to resemble an English country garden. I hope the Dales would be pleased with all this, Costas mused. 
So I love this. He takes the first six weeks and literally rebuilds their place. Stan had kept promising Pat that he was going to get this done. But Stan is so absorbed in the issues of the souls of the Yali. It's all he can think about. He wants his language studies. So he's totally lost in that. Meanwhile, Pat has this miserable living environment. So Costas shows up, and I, I can just see it. I mean, I, I can think the thoughts along with them. He gives a gift. He, out of his own pocket, he's going to do all of this, his own expense. He is going to invest over $1,000 of his own, which was a lot back then, into just the airstrip. Uh, and he is going to do so much renovation. And his whole thought is that when Pat and Stan arrive back, that they would feel like kings and queens, that they would be cared for. So now the showdowns begin. Now, what's interesting is when I was giving the message showdown, Costas would have been one of the great illustrations, but you have to hold some things back, right? Because otherwise I would have had to tell, tell you about Costas McCreese. But Costas is going to have three major showdowns. He's only here for a year. And I tell you what, it is one of the dangerous, most dangerous years so far in this whole experience with the Yali. They're at this boiling point right now where they want to destroy these uh, duongs, uh, these long-nosed white guys that are hanging out in their midst that are creating havoc for their sacred rituals, that are bringing in ideas that are impacting and infecting their children. Oh, this must be dealt with. And this is right what Costas is going to walk into. So this first one is what we'll call the cursed pig test. So what's going to happen is this older uh, Yali priest is going to set a pig on his front doorstep. He's actually going to knock, have some kind of communication, and Costas is going to answer, and the guy wants to give him a pig. And Costas is trying to figure out, the guy seemed rather afraid and just wants to get rid of the pig. And so Costas is like, well, thank you. Uh, can I pay you for it? And the guy doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to communicate at all. He just wants to run into the forest. And so Costas is like, great, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? And then he finds out that according to the Yali spiritual idea, uh, that if ever a pig is attacked by a wild dog, the wild dogs are all, you know, Kenbu spirits. And so if a wild dog ever attacks a pig, if you ever eat of that pig, then you will die. You'll swell up and die. And so they're actually wanting to get Costas to swell up and die. Let's just put it that way. And so this is like a test. So here we enter the story. This is uh, Costas speaking. He finds out from one of his helpers what's going on. He says, so they want to see if their spirits are strong enough to kill us, Costas thought. It's a good question and deserves a decisive answer. Butcher this pig for us, Costas said to his helpers, and then called to Alki. Tonight, we're going to eat pork. <laughs> so he literally puts on a display for the entire Yali people to say, watch. I'm going to eat this and watch. My God is greater than your Kenbu spirits. Sure enough, he doesn't swell up and die. And they're like, what? What is it with these duongs? Showdown number two, the visiting Balinga test. So right before Standale had left, he had offended the Balinga tribe uh, with a, an, an, an event that took place. 
And so they, they were really upset. And so when they found out that Costas had arrived, they sent warning to him not to visit their tribe. And they sent other statements saying, if you come near, we will kill you. So, I mean, it's pretty serious stuff. This is a very, very aggressive, murderous type of people. And so you don't want to take those things lightly, right? And so what does Costas think about that? When he hears that he's not supposed to visit someone, what does someone like Costas McCreese immediately think? Huh, that sounds like a good idea. We should visit them. So Don Richardson says it this way. The people of Belinga sent warning to Costas not to visit their village. The warning, of course, was the same as an invitation to Costas, for he was determined, if possible, to heal all misunderstandings in the valley. No, let, let's go to him. Let, let's go. But the, they said they'll kill you. Don't you know the power that we walk in? Don't you know what it means to be cloaked in the shed blood of Jesus? We're the ones that are bold. They're the ones that should be terrified. I mean, who thinks like this? Missionaries. And this is why we keep going over this in this series. It's a different frame of mind. It is not self-preserving. It is self-expending. Oh, by the way, I, I didn't even finish the story because it's not in my notes here. But so they go in, and sure enough, you know, they don't kill them. And it's a, it's a great story. I'm not going into the details of the story. But the village is impacted. They open up a school there. They start sharing the gospel there. And so it's interesting that when he does this, it, everyone notices. Because you have to realize all the Yali know he has death threats from this, this village. And he goes straight in. And what happens to the village? Well, they want to know about Christ. Well, that wasn't what they said they were going to do. They said that they were going to kill him, and they didn't. Remember, this is the sort of people that once they make a vow to death, they kill someone. And so as a result, everything about this is proving a greater power. Costas McCreese in each of these situations is demonstrating something to them. Showdown number three, the school attendance test. So one of Costas's passion points was schooling and training all the Yali in their own language, that they could actually learn to read it and then ultimately write it. And that's going to then, of course, prep them to understand the Bible. And so uh, as a result, he's building these different schools. And up to this point, only young kids had come to uh, these schools and were sitting in on the Bible lessons. And uh, the priests of Kenbu were definitely uncomfortable with this. And one of the leading priests... His two sons were almost like what we call the leaders of the church from the Yali side. And so he wasn't excited about this at all. And so he issued an edict, and all the priests agreed, that any kid that goes to school will be killed the next day. So they just drew a line in the sand. You go to that school, we'll kill you, even if you're our son or our daughter. So it's like, whoa, that's a pretty big deal, right? The word has gone out, Dongla informed his Greek friend sadly. The children are not to come to school anymore. Tell them, Costas replied evenly, that those who don't want to come are free to stay away. But if anyone chooses to come to school, no one should prevent him. Whoever prevents them will have to deal with me. Costas was not at all sure what he would do to anyone who accepted his challenge, but he knew he had to do something. And so Costas' answer found its way back to Andang. Andang is the priest who has two sons that are like the leaders of this, and he's not too excited about this. He's the one that issued the order in the first place. The challenge was accepted. The lines were drawn. Uh-oh, guys, we have another showdown. 
It's interesting how much these showdowns have to do with the permeation of the gospel into a pagan culture. Because their language is power in these cultures. And to actually see this demonstration shocked the Yali. This one scene right here, in this one year of Costas McCree's visit there, is so critical to the entire outflow of the rest of the story. In other words, even though most of you didn't even know this guy existed until this message, his life and his decision, even right here, is going to greatly impact this whole story, which, of course, my entire series is called Daring to Do with Stanley Dale. And yet, this one part of it is critical. What is taking place right here is going to have a spiritual power attached to it that is going to soften the hearts of some very, very key Kembu priests. And that ultimately is going to lead to a lot of other results. Next morning, why are you crying, Costas said to little Deli, who huddled cowering in a corner of the school. My father said they will kill me if I come to school today. But you chose to come anyway, Costas said softly. Yes, Deli sniffled, trembling. Don't be afraid, Deli, Costas said, putting his arm around the boy's shoulders. I won't let them kill you. Now, when you think about being a missionary, what options do you have? If you don't feel that you can use violence back, right, what do you have as your weaponry to say, you will not kill him? Mm -hmm. How are you going to stop us? Would be the, the Yali response to that. How do you plan on stopping us? Because we're stronger than you. These guys are muscular characters. They're big. I mean, they're, they're, they, you don't want to trifle with a Yali warrior, let alone a whole bunch of them that are armed to the teeth with bows and arrows and spears. It's like, I, I'm not sure, you know, what kind of wisdom there is to say, no, they will not touch you. They will not kill you. I'll make sure of it. What are you going to do, Costas? The same thing every missionary does. They stand firm in the boldness and the authority of Jesus Christ. And most of us don't see that as weaponry. And yet, as a missionary, it's critical to recognize that you have a power in the very presence of God in your life. And to exert that authority has made impact on so many different people groups throughout history. Dongla called Costas outside of the schoolyard. So Dongla is one of the sons of uh, Andang, who's the priest that's sort of behind this... Uh, no, no, you will not go to school anymore, otherwise we kill you, uh, proposal. So Dongla called Costas outside into the schoolyard. Grimly, he pointed to the ridgeline where angry men from Sibimu were milling about, shouting. Luliop joined Dongla and Costas as they studied the scene. Let's go up and talk to them, Luliop advised optimistically. Costas's brow furrowed. Me? He asked himself. Go up there and face those angry men? A few days ago, I risked my life at Balinga. Must I risk it again today? Now, here's what I love about this storyline with Costas. Is you actually, he's going to share later to Don Richardson exactly what was going through his head in this situation. And when you sort of follow what was going on in his head, you recognize this is the same thing that goes on in your head. And yet, many of you don't pull a Costas McCreese. You listen to what's going on in your head, and you don't ever move those legs forward. And this is what I love about this story is you see the humanity and the vulnerability and the self-propensity that Costas himself has. He's not superhuman. He's just indwelled by God Almighty, and he's willing to heed that. 
Go up there and face those angry men. A few days ago, I risked my life at Balinga. Must I risk it again today? Then came the subtle temptation. I am only a replacement here. In a few months' time, the man who began this work will return, and I will leave. The honor for whatever is accomplished here will accrue to him, not to me. So why should I put myself in danger? My own work awaits me in some other valley among a people of a different language. Should I not save myself for that work and be content with a mere holding action in this troublesome ninja? Whew. Wow, do I have thoughts like that that have gone through my head. Trying to reason through. The stand-in replacement role is a tough one. Because here he is, everything he does, no one's going to remember him. If anything good comes of this, who are they going to remember? They're going to remember someone other than him. He's only a replacement. So why does he need to risk his life? And that's exactly the temptation that is in his head right now. Then like a buzzsaw cutting through veneer, the words of Christ came to Costas as to Bruno before him. If any man gives priority to his own fulfillment, he shall lose it. His dark eyes flashing, Costas set his jaw. I am no mere bystander in this drama, he determined. While I am here, I am just as responsible to do my best as Stan would be if he were present. So that one little exchange of thought I have reflected back on many times in my life. When I recognize that that one statement, if any man gives priority to his own fulfillment, it's a fascinating way of saying it, as opposed to whoever tries to save his life will lose it. But listen to how he says it. If any man gives priority to his own fulfillment, he shall lose it. And what is the temptation? You see, he has a missionary heart. But he has in mind his own Yali tribe, his own Sawi tribe that he is going to be assigned to. He knows he's going to get it. But he has this one year of replacement work to do. And he needs to survive this year to be able to go into that and fulfill his dream of reaching an unreached people. This, this group isn't totally unreached because Stan Dale has already done the groundbreaking work. He would like to do groundbreaking work too. But right now, he has a very real threat. In fact, the, the simple fact that he is going to survive this story, this showdown, it's supernatural. He should have died. And so his thoughts are very bona fide. What he's facing in this situation is a whole bunch of angry tribespeople that are furious and ready to kill him. And they're waiting on the top of the hill. And Luliab's like, yeah, let's go up and talk with them. And he's like, we go up there and we die. And he knows it. He has that clear sense that this is a life and death situation. And still to go up there, who would do that? Especially if you're a stand-in. Why would you do that? For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake she'll find it. So Costas goes up to the top of the hill, and they're basically, uh, Andang comes up to him and pulls his bow and is ready to shoot him. Uh, I, forgot, I forgot his name. Do, 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 well, let me get his name. I, I always forget this guy's name. Dongla. 
Dongla, his son, Andang's son, son, is going to shove Costas out of the way, onto the ground, and stand in front. Meanwhile, uh, Alki, his wife, is going to be praying for him down there, and she's going to see her husband stumble down to the ground. And so she's like horrified, praying, Lord Jesus, help save my husband. But meanwhile, Dongla is going to give his life and stand in the place of Costas and basically say, Father, you're going to have to shoot me. Get out of the way, son. He's not your father. I'm your father. He is giving us the words of life. And it literally strikes them all, almost like paralysis comes over all the warriors. And each of them is standing there saying, we're going to kill you. And Dongla takes his father's bow from him. They each stand up and remove the bows from all the warriors, and they're stunned. They don't do anything. And they set him down on the other side of a wall. And then Costa stands before them and said, we came to you in love. And then he can't hold himself together. He starts weeping. And so here's a strong, tall man, this Greek man, standing in front of them, weeping, saying that we love you. We love you. And they literally are stunned silent. And the main thing that is going on in their minds is, whatever this is, it's more powerful than us. We can't even shoot a bow at them, an arrow at them. We have no power over whatever this is. Because they came with the intent to kill, and it's like they were unable to. How does that work? And yet, look at it from Costas's vantage point. He has to lay down his life to do this. Why would he do that? And yet, what he's going to do in the communication of that love, weeping before these men, is going to so impact them. You know who's going to show up at Bible class the next day? Ondang. Try and digest that one. That is amazing. So what Stan Dale and Pat Dale are going to return to is a completely different environment because this man was willing, even as a replacement, to lay down his life. Not for his own glory. He didn't do it so that I would bring up his name today. He did it because he knew this was unto Jesus. And he knew that this is what Christ was asking him to do, even if his name is forgotten in the chronicles of history. The amazing role of the Holy Spirit, the friend of the bridegroom. So this last week, we, we studied the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's role. Maybe that was Monday, wasn't it? It wasn't even just la this last week. It was Monday. And that was in our class. So just in case you're getting this via podcast, you're like, I don't remember that. Uh, it was in the class during the semester. And one of the most astounding things about the Holy Spirit is his humility. And the fact that he is willing to work unseen. His very nature is an unseen nature. In other words, like wind... Wind works, but you don't see the wind, you see the effects of the wind. And the same is true with the Holy Spirit, that he, in his very nature, is other than we are. That's what holy is. He is a spirit that is very unlike us. And one of those key areas is that he is self-expending instead of self-glorifying. He is willing to give up his life that others would live. And this is, of course, the behavior of the Godhead, yes, but the Holy Spirit in his role, it is profound that he is willing to take the position of a servant to lead people to Jesus. And so we gave the, uh, the illustration of, we call it the love story of Isaac in the Old Testament. And in that story, we have a father, we have a son, father is Abraham, the son is Isaac, and then we have an old servant. 
And what is, what is that old servant going to do? He's going to go and he's going to get a bride, and he's going to bring that bride to Isaac. You see, he's, he's a stand-in the whole while. He's not to draw attention to himself. He's to draw and prepare the attentions of that bride for the son. What a role to play. It is an incredible role. I'm going to read that through because it's such a great story. And then Rebecca and her maids arose and they rode on the camels and followed the man. His name isn't even mentioned in the story. He's known as the man. So the servant took Rebecca and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Ber Lehoiroi, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebecca lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. And so I always picture, as I said on Monday of this week, the bride, or Rebecca, and the old servant having a conversation the whole while. And she's saying, tell me more about him. Tell me more about him. And of course, that's his delight. He loves the son. He loves Isaac. And so he tells all the qualities of who Isaac is to the point where she is so desirous to meet this one, so desirous to encounter him. This is precisely the time period we are in. Who has explained Jesus to you? The Holy Spirit. He has lifted it out of his word, and he's lifted it, he's spoken to you specifically. He has caused your soul to be ravaged with the loveliness and the beauty of the Son, so that you so desire for him to come and take his place of rulership in this earth. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. But who's the one warming your soul to that? Who's the one convincing you? It's the old servant. It's the stand-in, if we will. He's the one that doesn't get the credit, but he's the one that's willing to do the hard work to lead us to Jesus. And it's a pretty extraordinary role, the friend of the bridegroom. So she took a veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The stand-in. So here's another definition of a stand-in, which I think fits well with what we're talking about. Someone willing to suffer, endure privations, and do hard work, even though the impact of that hard work will ultimately be credited to someone else. It's a hard thought to think of working really hard and having someone else get the credit for it. I mean, come on. That was my work. And all of us have probably had a, a twinge of this in our life at some point in time where you, know, you clean the kitchen and then someone comes in right before your mom comes home and like cleans a dish. And then your mom says, thank you so much for getting the kitchen clean. And then you're in the other room going, hey, I was the one that did it. The propensity that we have to want the credit for what we do, it's, it runs deep inside of us. And it's our self-nature. It's our firstborn side. When God gets a hold of us and he, he gives us a new birth in Christ, we are new creatures. This is one of the things he wants to groom us in is that we are willing to let go of the applause, that we are willing to give up the thank yous, that we are willing to give up the acknowledgements and give them to him. It's okay. I'm willing to do this sight unseen. I'm willing to do my serving anonymously. I'm willing to do that very hard back-breaking work 
and not have anyone know I did it but my Lord. That is a very, very special bond that forms between us and our king when we're willing to live that way. And so even though Costas did this and he was willing to be unseen, here I am all these years later bragging about him. Why? Because God bragged about him to me. Isn't that an interesting thought? You see, Costas didn't do the bragging. When Don Richardson saw what Costas did, it so impressed him that he actually figured out who Costas and Alki were and he brought this into his book. And he taught that whole year. He didn't just skip over it and say, well, let's stay on the line on the track of Stanley Albert Dale. No, he actually deviates from it and says, okay, Stan and Pat are in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Now look at this, guys. And so as a result, you see God bragging about Costas and Alki to me all these years later. So here I am in the year 2021, impressed with a man who gave up his life or was willing to give up his life, his own fulfillment, way back in the late 1960s. That's pretty special. Our job isn't to do the bragging. Our job is to do the expending. We are willing. The incredible work among the Yali, who did this amazing thing. So if we gave a summary report and I were to say something like, the Yali have been changed for Jesus Christ. I know, somewhat of a spoiler alert, right? Who gets the credit? Well, you'd probably say Stanley Albert Dale, Phil Masters, Bruno, uh, what, what, what did I say his name was? Uh, Delu. De uh, they would get the credit, and rightfully so in so many regards. In, in other words, it's not to diminish what they did. But you wouldn't think of Costas and Alki McCrees. And if we were to say the same thing with the incredible work among the Sawi, if any of you ever read Peace Child, who should get the credit for working among the Sawi? Who blazed the trail? Who did the work? Who figured out that the peace child was the redemptive analogy? It's like God used Don and Carol Richardson. So it makes sense. And yet, there's a part of the story you may not know. Don Richardson continues, and this is in the book Lords of the Earth. With remarkable selflessness, Costas and Alki volunteered to delay the beginning of their own pioneer ministry for still another year in order that young Sawi babes in Christ might have constant spiritual nurture during the crucial early years of their Christian experience. Don and Carol went on furlough the year after Stan and Pat, Dale did. And so instead of going to their own pioneering missions work, guess where they went? The Sawi people. To once again stand in. One year later, Carol and I returned from furlough to find, as Stan and Pat had found at Ninya, that more tribesmen knew Christ as Savior. Three new schools overflowed with hundreds of eager literates. The sick had been faithfully treated. Our own house and yard were greatly improved, and bouquets of flowers welcomed us in every room. We looked around us in awe. Never had we seen the spirit of Christ more exuberantly displayed than we saw it in dear Costas and Alki. Though they had greatly improved our home, they themselves had lived the year in an even smaller and less convenient structure. All right, guys, I don't know if you're as impressed as I am, but this couple, I want to be like them. And I want to be like Costas McCreese. There's something about this, this stand-in role, this willingness to be forgotten, this willingness to be overlooked. The only reason we know about it is because of Don Richardson. He's saying, guys, this is pretty extraordinary. Look what they did. And yet it's a small role in the big picture. 
then they're going to leave to do something else after this, right? And most of us probably don't even know what it was. And yet, the point isn't that we would know what it was. God wants us to see something in history. Do you see that? The great stand-in. Okay, I cannot think of any greater stand-in than the cross. Jesus is standing in for someone. He's, carrying the, he's doing the hard work of redemption. He's carrying the burden of sin that someone else should be carrying. You know who that someone else is? Us. We're the ones that should be doing that work. But guess who is standing in for us? Someone who can actually get it done. And so Jesus is going to stand in for us. I love this statement from How Deep the Father's Love for Us by Stuart Townend. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Boy, do I love that line. I'm going to read it again, guys, because it's good. Why should I gain from his reward? What did I do? He did all the work, and yet guess who gains from it? We do. It's actually accredited to, accredited to us as righteousness. So we are deemed righteous. Why? Because he stood in for us. That's amazing. He stands in on our behalf as an intercessor. We end up with the benefits. He ends up with the pain. He ends up with the death. We end up with the life. We end up with the comfort. What? And yet, this is precisely what we are called to in Christ. That we are willing to have pain. We are willing to suffer. We are willing to be challenged so that others can live. Are we willing to be a friend of the bridegroom? Where they don't fall in love with us, they fall in love with the one we're pointing to. One of my sister's statements that has always stood with me, she says, you can always tell when someone's anointed by God. And that is that when they're done speaking, you don't remember them, they were, you remember the one they spoke of. You're like, well, that's, a, that's an interesting point. You see, if the Spirit of God is really using someone, it's not to lead you to them. It's to lead you to the one they're speaking of. I remember her saying, the taste I want on everyone's mouth when I'm done interacting with them is I don't want them to be thinking, oh, what a great person Christina was. I want them to be thinking, what a great Savior Jesus is. And if we were to adopt that same mentality, that when we engage with the world, we want the, it's not that we're trying to say, oh, I don't want you to like me. It's not the opposite. It's just that the end is not you. That you're willing to decrease, that he would increase. The missionary motto of Stanley Dale, going enthusiastically, sharing courageously, serving sacrificially, suffering joyfully, dying triumphantly. Here are our Stanley Dale prayers. So we have 15 of them, guys. I'll read through them quickly, but these are good, and I want us to be praying these. Each message has a prayer with it. So the first one, Lord, prepare me for the heavenly call. Two, Lord, refine my taste buds for all heavenly delicacies. Three, Lord, season me, toughen me, and prepare me for all difficulty. Four, Lord, may I be preoccupied with that which preoccupies you. Five, Lord, may I uncover that which is in the thicket for my Sawi tribe. Six, Lord, may I be a doer and not just a hearer. Seven, Lord, show me clearly that I am never out of your sight. Eight, Lord, may I stand when others sit. Nine, Lord, fill me with your spirit of boldness. Ten, Lord, open my eyes that I may see. Eleven, Lord, burden me with what burdens you. Twelve, Lord, show me my role in this grand adventure. 
13, Lord, convert my weakness into strength. 14, Lord, reveal your power to this generation. 15, Lord, may I decrease that you might increase. Father, that's what we ask for today, that we would decrease so that you would increase. Lord, we want more of Costas and Alki in us. That work that you did in them to self-expend, to give, to serve, to love in that way. Lord Jesus, we want that in us. It is so attractive to our souls. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.